Welcome to the Carrero Podcast. Before we get started today, we would like to inform our listeners that Carrero is supported by edX Global. It's an international nonprofit where we work with K-12 students as they work with their local and global communities, providing service learning activities. In 2022, we are asking for your support in raising $20,000. It is to assist our students and their activities in creating gardens for schools and communities, purchasing and delivering blankets for the homeless, providing curriculum for teachers across the world, purchasing backpacks and filling them with educational items for students in need, and collecting and delivering food and toiletry items for the local homeless organizations. You can donate with Venmo using at edacts-global, or you can go to our website, which is www.edxglobal.org, spelled edacts G-L-O-B-A-L dot org and donate. We appreciate your support. Thank you. You are listening to the Carrero Podcast. I am Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Regina Martinez. Regina is an athlete on the Mexican cross-country ski team and an advocate for public health and environmental conservation and an emergency medicine doctor living in Miami. Over the past year, she became the first Mexican woman to represent Mexico at the 2021 World Ski Championship in Germany and was also the first to qualify for the Winter Olympics in this sport. She is also the only athlete from her country who has won a medal in international FIS cross-country ski race. While she loves ski racing, her biggest drive is to help the world be a better place through her role as a doctor and an advocate for vulnerable populations. If you'd like to learn more about Regina, you can look at her website. It's www.reginamartinez.org, spelled R-E-G-I-N-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-E-Z.org. You can also find her on LinkedIn. Her Instagram is Dr. underscore Regina, and her Facebook is Regina Martinez Cross Country Ski. Her TikTok is Dr. Underscore Regina. Hi, Regina. Thanks for joining us today. From what you've provided in your biography, you are super active, and we want to know where all of your inspiration came from. Um, that's a great question. So I, um, I think a lot of my inspiration came from my parents. Uh, they not only kind of were like we moved around a lot growing up uh, in kind of search of the American dream. And I think that was very influential and in kind of growing up, you know, like I, I moved every like two to four years and we would move for like opportunities and different jobs and stuff. Um, and for one, that kind of uh, taught me to just really like shoot for the stars or, or what's the thing, shoot for the moon. And even if you, like if you miss, you'll reach the stars. Uh, so I think a lot of it has been from my parents and um, just trying to, to, you know, whatever you can dream up, uh, you can achieve it if you work hard. So I, I think I have my parents for that. I love that. That's such a 
a nice yeah. way to pay tribute to your parents. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so tell us about life growing up in, in Mexico city. Um, it was awesome. I love the food. Uh, some of my best friends, I think from, from all the moves that I've had, like my, my closest friends are still in Mexico. Um, it was awesome to, to be able to be with family, uh, to connect with my culture and like my heritage and everything. Um, and, and to be able to have that formative experience in Mexico, cause we did move around a lot. Um, but there was, there were lots of points where we were back in Mexico. Um, so it was great. Uh, got to play soccer, got to, and that's where, like I played soccer before, but the one in one of the moves, when I went back, I, I was on the uh, team, uh, it's the Pumas de la UNAM in Mexico city and Las Fuerzas Básicas. So like the, the basic forces, like U16. Uh, so that was really awesome. Cause I got to really like, connect with, with, um, with my teammates and, and be involved in sports in Mexico. And I think that's part of where like my passion and love to kind of represent my country um, in athletic events came from. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you, I mean, you're obviously an athlete and then you played soccer in college can you tell us about your years playing and then um, what it was like to focus on your studies and then have to quit playing? Yeah. It, um, so I played for, for most of my life. At that point, it was like from when I was eight years old up until like sophomore, sophomore, junior year, sophomore year of college. Um, and it was awesome. Like I, I grew up with it. I grew up playing team sports. And I think that also kind of influenced me as a person and, and kind of my decision to go into emergency medicine because it's a team-based sport. Um, but no, it, it was, it was really, really great to be able to, to go to college. I went to Baylor university for, for undergrad and, um, I was able to, to join the club soccer team and, and it was super cool because I, I like made instant friends and, um, it gave me something else to kind of look forward to outside of school. Uh, and then eventually because I, I'm a first generation to study in the U.S. and also kind of the first doctor uh, in my family. Like I had a lot of ground to cover and a lot to learn. Um, and I did that mostly through mentorship and kind of eventually like freshman year, sophomore years, I realized like, okay, if I want to become a doctor, like it sounds really intense. And all my mentors are telling me, you know, you got to do really well in school. A lot of people have 4.0. So I was like, okay, if, if they can do it, I can do it too. And so I started focusing a little bit more on school. And by the end of sophomore year, I decided that I needed to kind of um, step back from it, at least for a time, uh, until I was able to, to make it into medical school. Because sophomore and junior year, I really were, uh, you kind of get all your stuff ready to apply to medical school uh, at the end of junior year. And so unfortunately, I had to step down. Uh, but I learned so much and got so much uh, from life, like out of life uh, through playing team sports. And, uh, and sometimes I still play soccer now and then, uh, but now a little bit less because my, my coach uh, for skiing, it doesn't want me to get injured. So he's like, try not to play soccer until like after you go to the Olympics. Uh, so, but I still kind of on occasion. Do Seems it. like <laughs> skiing would be more dangerous to get uh, uh, like injured than soccer though. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I mean, both, you can tear your ACL with both, yeah, but I think yeah. soccer can be a little more traumatic. So he's like, at least you can control what you can control in skiing. You can't control the other players. So <laughs> oh, that's an interesting perspective. I wouldn't have thought 
thought of it that way. You mentioned um, that emergency medicine is a team sport. Can you make some um, correlations for us in that way? Oh, yeah. Um, So in general, and I think I I love this about emergency medicine because it's a little bit different than other parts of medicine. Um, Everyone is a part of the team. And then other parts of medicine, there's a little bit more of like hierarchy, um, cause it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of levels of training, you know, um, as a medical student, then there's residents, then there's the attendings and like, so like surgeons for instance, and, and other staff. Um, but in emergency medicine, everyone, like, it doesn't matter who you are, you're there to help the patient and the, the less kind of like hierarchy and the more equal we are and the more we are a part of this team and this cohesive unit, the better care we give to the patients. Um, especially in like crazy situations when patients come in um, like in a code or in an arrest and you have to figure out what's going on with them and and there's really no time to to uh, there's no time for to just mess around like you just have to treat the patient and act quick and so the more teamwork there is and and the more of a community there is and um, it's overall better for the patient because then if a medical student or a nurse um, or anyone really has the the comfort of saying like, hey, I have an idea uh, to help resuscitate this patient. Like we didn't think of this. Um, or I heard that, uh, for instance, this patient fell and hit their hip. Um, I think maybe they're having a pelvic bleed, things like that. Being able to have that open communication and that trust within, within the emergency medicine family is how um, you can give good patient care. And so that's what I love about it. Um, it doesn't matter who you are, you're a part of the family. Yeah, I like that. That's a really good connection. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, because I, I didn't, I didn't re- realize that. And it, and it seems like in, in emergency medicine, kind of like in, in, in team sports, when you're, when you're playing with, with, your, with your teammates over, over numerous you know, weeks and months and years, you kind of know what what everyone's doing, and and you're and you're kind of like um, what's it called? You're anticipating everyone's next steps. Is that what happens also in 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 emergency medicine? A hundred percent. Kind of everyone has a role, just like in soccer, for instance. In soccer, um, you know, the midfielders try to get the ball ahead, and they run a lot, um, and then then they you know center it. Um, and then the forwards try to score and the defense, you know, is trying to, to prevent goals from happening. Um, same thing kind of in, in, in emergency medicine, you know, everyone has a role, everyone has a job and you kind of know um, everyone's role. And uh, when things, you know, get a little hectic, there, there is that like comfort in knowing, okay, well, this person um, like should be doing this and this person is going to be doing that. So what can I do to, to be one step ahead or to, or to help them do their job as well. Um, so whether that's like passing nurses like uh, syringe to tr- while they are like, while they're trying to put in an IV and in like a very critical patient or uh, giving like the senior resident a stethoscope because they're closer to the, the patient's head so that they can listen to their lungs um, because after intubation, that's what needs to be done and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's it's a hundred percent kind of like everyone has their role and, and everyone's trying to work together to to achieve this this common goal. Yeah, and I, I and I want to come come back to to that, but but what's a what's a person like 
like you, or how how does a person who's who's born and raised in Mexico City, which is warm, you know, has a pretty warm climate, and then you move to Baylor, or you go to school to, in Baylor, and then you end up in Minnesota, <laughs> where their winters are less than ideal. So can yeah. You, so can you tell us about that? And and then what was that like? Um, it was rough. <laughs> I, I even like trans. I had a gradual transition into winters because from after Baylor, I did a master's in in New York City, and okay. then from New York City, then I moved to Minnesota. But it was still pretty rough because, um, I mean, yeah, it's a huge like temperature shock and also culture shock. But that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, it, it, it's a huge like temperature shock, and I'm actually really really cold blooded, like. My sister makes fun of me. All my family makes fun of me because I will take a sweater to the beach because after being in the sun and if there's a light breeze, like I need to like, <laughs> take like cover. Mm. Uh, and most people don't really know that about me. Uh, but the people that do think it's amazing that like I'm actually skiing and that I'm out in the cold because it is freezing. But actually the only, so I kind of started skiing because the winters were so long and were, were kind of miserable if you don't go outside. Um, and I would see like out my window, all these people running outside in Minnesota, like at negative 15 degrees, like they're just jogging. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. Like when I lived in Texas, for instance, if it was less than 40, like classes were canceled. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so it was, it was just a big adjustment. And, but seeing others be active outside in the winters was like, well, I guess I have no excuse. And so I kind of um, that's kind of what, how I stumbled upon cross country skiing. One time a friend, uh, invited me over and, and was like, Hey, let's go skiing. And I was like, well, I guess. Um, and so I was super, super bundled up. Uh, and I kind of realized that eventually that like skiing is really, really tough. It's a really tough sport. So within like minutes, you like take off all your layers and you're almost in, in a one layer, like like long length shirt and and some leggings and maybe some uh like over like kind of they're swix pants so like some wind resistant or waterproof pants on top but they're like not very I mean they're kind of thin um and then you realize that you're like sweating profusely and it's you're like steaming out in this freezing tundra of Minnesota um and that's the only reason that's actually the only way I can be outside um if it's if I'm not skiing like you'll see me like sprinting like a gazelle from place to place to get inside (laughs) (laughs) um so it's pretty funny and and even like so right now I recently went um on tour with my team uh with what part of my team uh from Argentina in Chile uh and they were laughing at me because before right before races or after warming up I would like I had blankets on top of me I had like these massive coats and they're like you're a bunch of race, like how are, I'm like, don't judge me. This is just what I want to do. <laughs> um, and they were even laughing too. Cause they, I think no one really expects that. So I'm like, kind of, I'm like go all out even in like races and things. And I dread like, like undressing right before the race. It's like the worst feeling. But then when you start, it's like, you got to go fast to, to warm up. <laughs> wow. Now, yeah. T- Talk to us about medical school and and the and the cultural aspect because you were talking about the culture shock. Well, the culture shock. Um, there's, I guess, a lot of really. It, it's a cute kind of culture shock in Minnesota because 
like the people are very friendly um they're very and I had just come from New York so it was like a, a instead of being more um direct like New Yorkers Minnesotans are very nice they're very polite um there's like this saying called Minnesota nice so I uh so I go there and um it's also a lot of like Nordic culture and um a predominantly um kind of white demographic but there is also a good amount of like refugees from um from what's it called uh Somalia right so Somalia mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somalia a huge mm-hmm. Somali population a huge Hmong population and there's also a big Hispanic population um but it's different than New York for instance New York City because it's a little bit more siloed so yes there's a lot of cultures but everyone's kind of within their own bubble um and so, which is it was fine, you know, it was different. And then within medical school, um, only 5% of, of medical students in the U.S., at least in the, the last statistics that, that came out, only 5% are Hispanic Wow. Um, in medical school. Yeah, so uh, going from New York City and Texas and, like, all these other places where I've lived where there's, you know, I've been surrounded by Hispanics from multiple parts of the world, um, then just being kind of one of maybe like five or seven, uh, Hispanics in my class was, was tough, especially because, well, um, you don't really have a lot of time in medical school to, to branch out and make friends outside of medical school, especially when you move there for that purpose. It's, it's a little bit tough. Um, but we were still able to kind of build a community and eventually by my third and fourth year, there was a lot more Hispanics. Uh, in our classes so we we like my one of my friends and I like funded the Latino Medical Student Association um because we finally had enough to start a chapter and uh so yeah so that's kind of how I managed that but it was really nice because I did learn a lot about like other cultures um like uh so I have Somali friends and I'm also like Minnesota itself has a lot of Nordic culture like a very like Viking culture. And that's the, that's different from something that I had ever experienced in any other state too. So. You also mentioned in your bio that you are very much um, looking towards supporting uh, the population in vulnerable cultures or vulnerable populations. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so in general, I've, I've like found, I guess, as, as I've moved on in life, like, one of my biggest passions and one of the biggest reasons why I went into medicine is, is being able to help people in need or people in vulnerable positions, whether that is um, for like vulnerability in like socioeconomic situations, whether that's like homelessness, for instance, whether um, like whatever it is, like for instance, in health, you know, like in the emergency, so in emergency medicine, you get to see emergency medicine is a safety net of of medicine so by by law any patient that comes into the emergency department regardless of their ability to pay like needs to be seen and I think that's amazing because that's that's part of the reason I went into medicine in the first place is is to be able to treat all patients um and uh a lot of times the patients that come into the ED are patients that normally don't have primary care uh so we see a lot of patients um from all backgrounds and all walks of life. And um, we see people who are housing insecure. Um, and then in general, by by nature, you see people kind of, regardless of where they're from, like the color of their skin, their background, 
um, when they go to the emergency department, that's one of the times where they're probably the most vulnerable in their life. Um, you don't really go to the emergency department for fun. You go because you're in a lot of pain or something terrible happened. Um, or, or, you know, so there's some people that go to seek basic care that don't have, uh, like, the, you know, a regular uh, primary doctor. And so we get to see all those people. And that's kind of where I realized that that's why I ended up in emergency medicine is because I realized that in general, I have a, a big passion to serve um, like vulnerable populations in my life and, and within medicine, that's, and that's what I found in emergency medicine. Um, but overall, I like, we grew up kind of, even though we grew up seeking the American dream, we always, like my parents taught us, my sister and I to always like give back to the community and to help others, um, others in need. And, uh, there was actually a time that stuck out with me uh, and stayed with me when I was, I think, about eight years old. My family and I were eating in a restaurant in, the, in one of the beaches in Mexico and in, in Veracruz. And um, and I, a little boy kind of my age was, was selling necklaces. And I asked my dad, I was like, Dad, like, is, do you think he goes to school? Or like, do you think this is what he does? And um, And then my dad said, you know, we don't know. Like, why don't we ask him? And so he uh, he wanted to sell us these necklaces, and, and instead we actually invited him to to eat with us. Um, and so we just shared a meal, and we got to know him. His name is Juanito. Uh, and um, eventually, so we like ate, and it was just really, really like beautiful to kind of be able to to get to know him, and and also be able to value like man, you know. I'm in, in this position where like we can, we can be at this restaurant and it wasn't even like a fancy restaurant. It was just a restaurant. Um, and being able to, to have this meal and, and it sucks that I like my same age, eight years old, like someone may not have that ability. We bought one necklace. Uh, and then outside of that, we, we gave him, um, some more and we didn't want to take his necklaces so he could sell more. Um, and so just kind of, that's, that's, the way that I was raised is, is to always kind of, um, the, with the principle that to those who much is given, much is expected and, um, and to always kind of give regardless of, 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 you know, how like how your budget is or, or where you're at in life. Like there's always people that you can help in, in, in any way, it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, with money. Um, and so that's kind of, how, yeah, I don't know how I was raised and, and how, what, one of the things that I value the most and uh, what I try to do both in medicine and outside of medicine as well. It sounds like you well, had a really good example from your, your parents as to, you know, how to treat people and how to ask questions and find out what their needs are rather than assume their needs. Yeah. Um, that's a really nice story. Thank you. That's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that one. Um, and, and because like one of the things I was, I was going to ask you is why you, you know, why you chose emergency, um, emergency medicine, um, because it, it seems very hectic and chaotic, but then you were, you were talking about that team approach. Um, and it, and it seems just based, based off of your active, active lifestyle and trying to do all these things, it seems like emerg- um, emergency medicine fits well with you <laughs> just because it's, it's, it's active and it, there's, there's, there's all, it's like organized chaos. 
Exactly. And that's exactly how my life is. My life is organized chaos. When people think like, oh, how do you get, how do you do all these things? I think they assume that I have all my life put together. I'm like, I, um, uh, I don't know. And I think they assume this version of me and then they get to know me and they're like, man, yep, you're like a disorganized mess. Uh, and I'm able to kind of do all the things, but they come out like, like barely, barely, barely possible, but I, I can manage to do them. But no, in general, I've always been active. Like as a kid, my grandma or my parents would have to like chase me down like uh, the slide to feed me or to or, like catch the swings. So, like, okay, you get you can swing for five minutes, but then you have to have, take one bite. Um, and so I think that's kind of why I really like emergency. And, and I also really, I mean, kind of like an adrenaline junkie. I feel like a lot of us who go into emergency are, you know, you gotta, you gotta like that, like fast pace and, sure. um, all the situations that come your way. Uh, but yeah, no, and emergency is actually a really cool field because, uh, we have shift work and that's not this, like, that's not true for most of medicine. Most of medicine, you go to the hospital or you go to clinic and you leave when the work is done. And even when the work is done, you still have patients that can call you or you still have to round on patients. And like you, you have the, these uh, more formal, longer relationships with patients. Uh-huh. Um, and in emergency, it's more shift work. So you'll work, uh, when eventually when you're in attending and you have a better, better quality of life, you can work like six to 12 shifts some a month. And, um, the moment you leave the hospital, whether those shifts are like eight, 12 hours along, you leave the hospital and you have no responsibilities. You don't get called back. Um, so unless like you're, you're calling, if they have a question about something that was done or anything, but it's never, uh, it's really never the case. And so I think it's great because it, it does allow you to have, um, kind of more freedom in your personal life. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Wow. So then, um, sorry, Malia, do you want me to ask a question? Go ahead. (laughs) Um, and so then with, with, with all this, with all this work that you're doing, and then you went to Minnesota and you took a cross cross country scheme, you then became a member of the Mexican national team for cross country. How, how did you do this, uh, you know, along with everything else that you're doing? Well, uh, it, it was pretty simple and easy, especially at that time, because, um, well, first of all, I, like my first winter I or my second winter it was the polar vortex it was like negative 60 degrees first time and only time the classes were canceled in like years and the reason why is because gasoline freezes it's not because it's because you can't get anywhere and so in 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 these these dark times these dark cold times I was contemplating my existence and like why I ended up in Minnesota (laughs) And, uh, and then I just randomly, I was walking home. I was like, man, this is horrible. And I, the idea just came like, okay, well, how many Mexicans have gone to the winter Olympics? Cause at least, you know, this can be an opportunity rather than, like a blessing rather than a curse. And so I Googled it and I found that four Mexicans went to the 2018 Olympics and the further, like I, I like the, the more research I did, the, when it's when I realized that no Mexican woman had ever qualified for the Olympics for cross country skiing. And for, for it's true for a lot of winter sports, but cross country skiing is the one that kind of caught my attention. 
Uh, and so that's when I just reached out to my, my current coach, German Madrazo, who's the Mexican skier from 2018. And, um, he told me kind of how, how to begin, where to start. And I emailed them the Mexican ski federation. And I think at that point there was three women that were registered, but none of them had ever competed. Um, and the three women are in their, uh, they're like in their forties. Uh, they're amazing athletes in, in other like fields and they've like never stopped being professional athletes. Uh, but they just never really raced or, or did much with cross country skiing. And I think it's because mo- the three of them lived in Mexico um, regardless. So that's kind of how I started. I just emailed, I had a phone conversation and he's like, okay, well you, you can join the team. There's like three other athletes. It's a hard sport, but if you want to try, like go get it. Uh, and that's really how it started. So it wasn't that, um, you don't really have to try out at this point because there's really few athletes. Um, you do have to have some kind of athletic background. So he, the president of the federation asked me, you know, like, so what's, you know, what, what other sports have you done? Or like, what do you do to stay active? Um, and so I just told him, you know, I've played soccer most of my life. I also was a runner. I like was a swim team and like basketball team and like the off seasons of soccer. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I started. <laughs> that's incredible. And you make it sound like it was super easy, but I'm sure that it wasn't. I'm sure it just is a testament to your tenacity and like how you don't take no for an answer. Like, oh, there's no snow in Mexico. Like that's going to stop me from being a cross country skier for the Olympics. Like, I just think that's really cool. It's a really good message to send to young people. Like don't let no snow stop you from, you know, right. pursuing yeah. a goal. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you have passions regarding medicine and the environment. Um, can you talk about those a little bit? Sure. Um, so in general, like, uh, where to begin? Um, just in general, kind of, so I also have a, a background in public health. And that's where I learned, like, you know, we learn a lot and we talk a lot about the social determinants of health and how, you know, health is way more than just seeing a person in the hospital and their individual disease or their individual, like, pathology or whatnot. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, fact, it's a lot of factors that play into health. Um, and so that's a lot of the conversations that, I, that we had and that I learned in, in public health school is, is, like, seeing the individual outside of their um, outside of that moment of like when they have a certain disease or whatnot and seeing like their whole context, you know, like why has it, you know, why can't, why, like why this, can this patient, um, who's diabetic and has high blood pressure, like why aren't they taking their meds and why are they ending up in the hospital? A lot of it is access. So like, do they have transportation? Can they afford their medications? Like, do they understand the importance of this or like health literacy and like, outreach and things like that and so that's one of the 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 greatest perspectives that I gained from public health school that I carry into medicine is is seeing kind of patients outside of that context and that's the kind of work that I like to do outside as well um like I've done several projects like with um capacity building um and for instance like medical relief trips where it's not just necessarily going to a different country and and like giving care and then like disappearing it's helping establish um like programs so that the patients can 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 have a space to um to seek care and then also teaching local like nurses or doctors like you know way like things that we do differently in the u.s for instance 
um, so that they can treat their their patients and um, and whatnot. And um, I also am like passionate about, for instance, uh, the more social issues like the conditions and like the border detention camps and um, which are pretty tragic. Like there's a lot of human rights violations and. Um, so in medical school, we did, we organized, a, a, a national march actually like a national, uh, what did we call Cajun, uh, for all like the, the Latino medical student associations throughout the U S to, to host this Cajun and like have their medical school, um, like this, this protest where, where we would talk about these issues relating to like detention camps at the border and how that affects health and how, you know, because health is a, is a human right. And um, like other human rights that we, we have this position of, of privilege and power in medicine to, to speak up against, against those injustices. And, um, and so we were able to do that. Uh, and then, yeah, I just kind of have a lot of projects that I'm passionate about and for, in the environment too, it's something that, um, you, in public health, we actually learned about this. I don't know the exact number, but we produce a ridiculous amount of waste, like of pounds of waste on a daily basis. You think like, there's no way, like, I, you know, I, I could get home, this, this and that, but like, even for instance, when you grab a cup of coffee, like at Starbucks, like it's not, it's the cup, it's the sleeve, it's the, the, the plastic top that goes on it. It's if you added some sugar, it's the wrapper of the sugar. If you put like, um, you know, or if you wanted to shake it, there's a little plastic stirrer, things like that, that if you, if you like stop to think about it, there's so much waste that we produce as humans and, um, and kind of even more so that I, I've been more passionate about it is now that I'm skiing because I've only been skiing like I've only really known winter sports for about four years now and even from those four years like I've seen how climate change is affecting winter um the first two winters that I was in Minnesota were were pretty much the same like it was very predictable like October 31st Halloween was the first snowfall and there wouldn't be snow for like two or three weeks. And then the snow would gradually kick in. And then the season would be like, there'd be a good amount of snow up until like March, mid-March, for instance. And then it would dry up. And then April 14th, or like that second week of April, there was always like a huge, like little blizzard. And then that was like the end of it. And that that's kind of like the, the pattern, the predictable pattern of, of winter in, in Minnesota. And now all of a sudden, like third year, um, the snow wouldn't come and fourth year, same thing, or it would come later. Uh, so like actually a lot of the snow that the cross country skiers have now, like the professionals that go to the world cup and, and all these big races, most of the snow is man-made because by the time the season starts in November, uh, November, December, like there's still no snow and even up until January. So, um, seeing this has made me even more passionate about like starting these discussions uh, about climate change and, um, and kind of doing what you can, like doing your part to try to prevent um, kind of, or like decrease your footprint. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Sorry, that's like you a covered answer. a lot and, you know, I was just getting just awestruck by you listening to all of your passions and, that's kind of the the danger of being a passionate person, right? Because then you feel like 
there's not enough hours in the day or days in the week or <laughs> weeks in the year to accomplish and help and try to solve all of these things that we become passionate about. But, um, you know, one of our guests a while back, um, a young um, lady from um, Finland said, you know, if a lot of people do a little, that's a lot, right? If one person does a lot, you know, that's not nearly as much as if, you know, a lot of people can just do a little bit. So I really like hearing how you are doing little by little, which are equaling a lot. So thank you for that. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It is like you said, it is really tough um, to try to do all these things. Mm-hmm. And this, I do find myself like frustrated at times. Um, but each day, kind of the uh, the closer I get to finally being done with my train, my medical training, it never gets done because you're always learning in this field. Um, but you, you eventually have more free time. Like I'm excited to be able to to do more uh, at that time. But even small things, like you said, like just telling your friends or like. Um, or, you know, even like trying to carpool when you can or ride your bicycle. Like if it's not that far of a distance or for instance, if you're going to the gym and the gym's maybe two miles away, um, if you're going to go to work out anyway, like why don't you walk to the gym or things like that. So those are things that I like try to tell my friends or like, hey, you should turn off the lights or even in, in, in the hospital when we're doing ultrasounds because you do a lot of ultrasounds in emergency medicine. If there's, if there's something that's like more, um, like superficial skin and stuff. Like I, a lot of people wear gloves to almost do everything to like touch everything in the hospital. And it's like, yes, it's important because that it helps with like infection prevention and like for like stopping the spread of diseases. But hand washing also helps. Like you don't need to use ten pairs of gloves every time you see that one patient to like touch whatever. Like you can just wash your hands mm-hmm. um, uh, and do it thoroughly, and and that still is that can make a little difference. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you, that I'm wondering, are, are we going to be seeing, um, as part of your profile, Olympian and astronaut? <laughs> Cause you were, you were also talking about your, um, fascination for NASA and, 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 and space. So, so can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, hopefully one day that's like in more of my, my five to 10 year plan. <laughs> Um, that's not that far away. No, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's more, it's more of like a after the Olympics. If I, if I am able to go to the Olympics, it's my after the Olympics plan. Um, no, I really, I really think that's space so is cool. fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I just think it's so fat. Like space is super fascinating. And, um, uh, recently when, I don't remember when I learned about it, but I learned that there's a fellowship in space medicine. There's only like three places in the country that have this fellowship. And part of the fellowship is getting a master's in public health, which I already have. So I'm like, oh, maybe it'll even be shorter. Wow. <laughs> maybe instead of two years, I can be there for a year and a half or something. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. Um, yeah. And so it's awesome because you like the physiology or like the, like your body changes so much when there's no gravity and when there's more radiation and like all these crazy things like happen. And a lot of it, we don't even understand. Um, and so part of it is, is being kind of fascinated by, by the human body in space and how all that changes. And then the other part is I like, 
I would love to see the earth from space. Oh, yeah. um, so, so even if I can't become a, a space surgeon is what the doctors that can go to space are called, even if they're not like surgical, like surgically, surgically trained. Um, if I can't become a space surgeon, I'm hoping that by the time I'm like 60 flights out to space can be cheap enough so I can go see the earth from outside at least once. Yeah, Without I mean, with your tenacity, I think that we will make that a reality for you for sure, just because of how you just go and achieve all the things. That's so cool. But <laughs> yeah. So uh, as we're wrapping up, we always ask our guests what their one call to action is, the one takeaway that you would want our listeners to take from you. So Regina, what is your call to action? My call to action? Um, I think... I think I would have to say that, like, whatever you're passionate about um, and whatever you kind of, what your hopes and dreams are, things that you want to accomplish, no matter how, like, difficult or impossible or crazy as they may be, um, I just want to encourage everyone to, like, stick with it and, like, try to find a way. Like, I am a firm believer of, like, when there's a will, there is a way. And there's there's multiple multiple ways to to kind of get there. Um, but I definitely want to encourage everyone to like keep following their dreams, no matter, you know, how challenging they may be. And even if it means like taking a step to the side to, to, for instance, like if your dream, you know, a lot of things, unfortunately in life require money. Um, but if, if that's an option, the reason why you're not chasing your dream, like don't necessarily give up on it because money is a factor, like find a way to like take a pause find a way to, to make the money or to get the resources or to um, get, you know, kind of make a plan and find a way to, to get all the things you need to, to achieve that plan and set that in motion to achieve your dreams. Um, because anything can really be possible. Um, if, if, um, <laughs> if a cold blooded Mexican who had never really saw snow until she like experienced real snow until she was like 27 could like, qualify for the Olympics in, in two to three years um, and do all these crazy things. Like it, it is possible. You just have to have, you know, the, the, the support system as well to, to, to be able to achieve it. And so finding those people, finding, you know, those resources and, um, and staying kind of true to yourself and, and believing in yourself and, and keeping that fire in your heart uh, and that dream alive, I think, is, is the way that you can achieve anything. That's awesome. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you, Regina. Regina, thank you for your time today. Thanks for fitting us into your busy schedule. And uh, thanks for all of your passion and your work with all the people that you touch. I, I think that everyone probably remembers you after meeting you. And I, I think that, um, we're just lucky to have you in this world and have more people like you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me and and being able to share all my, my craziness (laughs) on the podcast. Great craziness. (laughs) (laughs) 